Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. If you've ever checked out the local writer's shelves in your favorite bookstore, or wandered into a gift shop or specialty store while traveling throughout Northern Michigan, you probably are familiar with the name Frederick Stonehouse. Mr. Stonehouse has authored at least 30 books on topics ranging from the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald to tales of numerous hauntings and mysteries within the Great Lakes Basin. As I was headed to the studio today, I glanced at my bookshelves and I realized my passion for Michigan history and the love of a good ghost story has been at the very least partially inspired by today's guest. So it is a distinct pleasure for me today to welcome author Frederick Stonehouse to our program. Well, thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Oh, great. You know, so many people, myself included, find your books about the amazing history and the paranormal phenomena that abounds us here, especially in northern Michigan, fascinating. I know my bookshelves personally contain almost every book you have ever written. That's more than I have, but... <laughs> <laughs> Tell us just a little bit about your background and connection to the Great Lakes. Through the back door. How's that? Um, I grew up on the New Jersey shore. Oh, okay. Of course, being in that type of an environment, uh, shipwrecks and pirates and storms and buried treasure and Coast Guard rescues, all of that maritime history was about you. Uh, so you had an opportunity to kind of grow with that, and it, it became something that you became terrifically interested in. When I went to college, I went out to Michigan, went up to Northern Michigan University in Marquette, right on the shores of Lake Superior. So those interests transferred with me. And when I was going to school, there wasn't a lot of local interest on the Great Lakes anywhere, really, in maritime history. Uh, they kind of knew they had it. There was some couple of great writers out there, Bowen and Boyer, uh, with a number of great volumes that they had put together. But with that exception, there wasn't a lot of, of research being done on it. The diving was just beginning to open up on the Great Lakes. So you, even that side of the picture, you really weren't getting a lot of. So it was an opportunity to come into the ground floor on something that you enjoyed terrifically anyway, and you now were in a position to watch it grow around you. It's, it's kind of ironic considering the, the maritime history we have here, you know? Well, again, it was a different age, and people were not thinking so much about maritime history. They were thinking about Roy Rogers and the 11s and... <laughs> Now, Fort Frontier, and that was the, the genre where the, the, a lot of folks were deeply interested in it, but it, they were ignoring what was in their own backyard. Yeah. And the museums that we did have uh, did a lousy job of selling it, a uh, lousy job of exploring maritime history. They were more interested in showing a, a, a living room from 1890 with Aunt Martha's doily set up. I mean, it was a different uh, venue at the time. What was your, um, I guess, where, did you, where, where were you able to find uh, research material? Well, you began at the bottom. <laughs> um, <laughs> once you began to, on turn one rock, you would find another rock, another rock, another rock. And I, I like to joke with people and say you're, you've are you been doing it long enough now that you know where the, the bones are buried. You know where the bodies are. So you know what institutions at this point are generally holding what material and you know that if you need it, you know how to get into it to find it. And of course, the internet now has almost blown that completely up as they continue to put more and more of it online and making it more and more open to everybody anywhere in the world. And that is truly a good thing. You know, that type of material should not be locked away. It should be open for further study and continued exploration. Absolutely. Yeah. History gets lost very quickly. Um, 
uh, without without ways of net, of uh, you know documenting it permanently like that. Uh, what was your first book? Uh, first book uh, was one I did called Great Wrecks of the Great Lakes, uh, rather of the Great Lake, and it just looked at some of the Lake Superior shipwrecks. But to put that in perspective, the only reason I did it was because really nobody was. And you were really excited about these shipwrecks you were learning about and some of them that you were diving on and exploring, and you wanted to tell other people. And back then, the only venue you really had was do a book. Mm -hmm. And that's what you did. And that began another and another and another as you began to wander down the highway of maritime history and maritime exploration, following the things that interested you at the time. Uh, as you started, you looked more heavily at diving. Gradually, that evolved more to how ships were constructed on the lakes, the trade that was ongoing, how that was managed. That kind of led to shipwrecks. That kind of led, at that point, to shipwreck exploration which went a little bit further and led to the life-saving service and the early Coast Guard. And you understand what I'm trying to explain, how all of these links in the chain are all together and invariably lead to another, in some cases, even cross-connected. Well, obviously you have... I even a... did a cookbook. <laughs> I, I, did, I, I did a cookbook on uh, lighthouse recipes simply because it popped up in the, my mind one day. I wondered what lighthouse keepers ate. And of course, when you thought about it a little bit, you figured out it was probably what everybody else did. But it also gave you an opportunity to set up a book then that had little, oh, one page that gave the lighthouse history, and then another that gave a recipe that was in some fashion uh, attached to that lighthouse. And I did that with 100 historic lighthouses across the country. Wow. The book didn't do worth uh, very well at all. It's a very tight genre to try to get into. But it was fun to do. It was fun to research. It was fun to demonstrate. Well, I'm going to search that one out because I'm always looking for some good recipes. Uh, how did they How did they eat uh, back in those days? I mean, was it, like you said, it was pretty uh, common fare, but uh, did they, was, the nutrition was good? And... Well, it depended entirely where you were. If you were on the west coast or the east coast, you often did lobster. You, you did the bottom fish that you were able to get. If you were in Marquette, Michigan, you're eating pasties. That's a great recipe you can put in further to the northwest uh, area. Dungeness crabs, for example, out of Washington and recipes that, that fell in with that. So it kind of came together very nicely, but it just was a kind of a cute way of getting people, I hope, a little more interested in the maritime side. Yeah, absolutely. How many books total, including the cookbook? Well, uh, that's a little bit of a mystery. My guess is somewhere more than 30. And that's uh, using, for example, I wrote the historic resource study on Bishop Rocks National Lakeshore which is a, a book length research document. So I counted that as a book, so that's a book. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a couple of children's books. Uh, I didn't do the illustration. We had an illustrator work up the, uh, the imagery, but I told a story. One was shipwrecks on the lakes and the other one was uh, a little boy's adventures with his grandfather who was a lighthouse keeper during the summer vacation. But again, you're looking at maybe 20 pages on it. It's a book, it counts, it's bound. Uh, but it's different than you might expect with a book full-blown on shipwrecks. Sure. So it's a, just a, a whole galaxy of different ways of exploring the same general theme. And making it more interesting, I guess, to different niche groups, too. Well, you're trying to. You're trying to find to appeal not only to everybody, but to some people, perhaps more than others, that, that haven't really been played to before. Well, in, in addition to all the history you've generously shared over the years with your books, and it sounds like you have a great interest in maritime history. 
I have to assume you also have somewhat of an interest in, in the paranormal based on the titles of some of your books, like Haunted Lakes, Haunted Lakes 2, Haunted Lake Michigan, Haunted Lake well, Huron. Yeah, those were fun. They were fun. They were fun because you began to wander, wonder a little bit again. And, you know, wonder can be, a, I guess, a, a real motivator to open up different doors. But, you know, maritime history and maritime tradition or and folklore come very closely together, especially around the world and the linkages between them. And that often occurred because the sailors that we had on the Great Lakes were sailors initially in Europe. And they had simply migrated to the Great Lakes. And when they did that, and I'm talking Finns and Swedes, Norwegians, Frenchmen, uh, Cornishmen, virtually everybody, every ethnic group represented, brought along a little bit of their, their cultural heritage. And very often that manifested itself in, in different traditions on the Great Lakes, particularly as they concerned the supernatural. For example, you would never take a knife and stick it into the mast of the ship. Okay. Uh, that was a, a real no-no for a Finn to, to do that. Uh, again, bicultural heritage. So once you began to get your fingers around, your hands around the superstitions that were prevalent and how and why they got there, then you could begin to think, well, gee, I wonder if this ghosts are particular to this. And as you began to talk to other people that were involved in the field, particularly those small groups that were running lighthouses as a historical uh, attraction, they would be filled with stories of, of noises heard in the lighthouse at night if lights had went off and on. So you began to harvest those tales and stories. And it became a, a, a fun little career for a while of running them down and talking to the people that were the witness, uh, the people that make it a true ghost story, i.e. in terms of they have a story, whether it's, it's verifiably true or not, I, I certainly can't prove it. But it builds on that maritime tradition on the lakes. Ghost ships were very commonly seen, or at least reported seen, around the, the uh, well, early 1900s, maybe up till about 1920. Uh, if you lost a ship at sea, uh, lost a, she a, a, a ship on the Great Lakes that disappeared in the storm or uh, under other conditions, then very often it would be seen again under similar conditions for the next 10 or 15 years or at least reported to have been seen again by other sailors on other ships. So that tradition continues. I just watched, it's funny you said that, because my son and I, we just watched a television show about the ghost ships of Alaska, and it's the same phenomena. Like for 10 or 15 years after a disappearance or a sinking or a collision, they'll see these ghost ships. These are, these are people that make their life and save their lives with, with their abilities on, on the lakes, and they're seeing things that they truly believe they're seeing. Well, that's right. That, that element of, of belief is critical, but I'm not trying to take credit for opening the whole genre here to Great Lakes ghost stories. Uh, that honor probably belongs to a fellow named Ivan Walton. Uh, Ivan Walton was a folklorist at University of Michigan back in the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, who had a massive collection of early Great Lakes cultural items concerning maritime as well as folklore concerning maritime. And when he eventually passed, all of that collection, and then I'm about the time it was, I think, 20 uh, research boxes filled with it, none of it organized in any particular coherent fashion, was given to the, uh, I think, the name of the uh, the archives at the uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. But that finally became open to public use. And when you went through it, began to go through, you were finding stories that he had that you had half of, and he had the full story. 
or perhaps he had half of it and you had the full story. Uh, so it was interesting to see, again, what you were doing being co collaborated or corroborated by another researcher 20 or 30 or 40 years before that was able to find the same type of material. Just really remarkable and understanding that this, this gentleman would spend his summer vacations going through the Great Lakes ports, running down these sailing captains that were still alive to record their stories using wire tape recorders. Uh, that's how old it was. Uh, he would go to the uh, Sh uh, Shamrock Bar on Beaver Island with a couple of couple of bottles of uh, Jameson's Irish whiskey <laughs> and find the Gallagher boys and get a day's worth of stories from them. All again on the folklore, the traditions, the ghost stories, the supernatural that they've encountered in their very long careers. I, I primarily um, started my tour company. I own a jewelry store, but I also do tours and, and uh, I'm the president of the Michigan Hemingway Society. So I do a lot of Hemingway tours and then I started getting fascinated by the history of Northern Michigan, where I spent a lot of time since a young boy. And then I was asked to do the ghost tours one time downtown, and now I'm a ghost guy. And so I collect <laughs> <laughs> the bald-headed ghost ghost guy downtown. And uh, But I collect these stories, and it's funny, like what you said, so many people will tell me stories they have no idea what other people have told me. So I, I keep documents, you know, I keep keep recording these these occurrences, and there's so many similarities. And so I do, I do a lot of ghost tours, too. We do um, a, a ghost walk in downtown Petoskey, and... And Bayview also, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of energy over in Bayview, in my opinion. And I think it, it stems from all the creativity and the, the tradition and just, just strong energies that have been spent there. But CNN last year ranked Michigan as like one of the third or fourth most active states in the Union for Paranormal Phenomena. And, and lighthouses, my God, try to find one that doesn't have stories about ghosts, right? Absolutely. And, of course, you know, if you're into parapsychology, then you will be aware that ghosts and water tend to run together. Uh, that the, the water itself, the big lake, the big river, uh, really provide an, an energy source for the supernatural. Uh, at least that's one of the arguments that, again, the paranormal folks will make. And I can't prove it right nor wrong. What it is a little, what I will take credit for that I don't think anybody else has done is ghosts underwater. And you gotta think of it in these terms. Supposedly, if you have a great tragedy, uh, something with, uh, with death caused by disaster or foul, foul means, then the energy from that accident, from that disaster, tends to linger there, and the ghost the paranormal activity is now part of whatever happened. So if there's a building that was destroyed by fire, perhaps, and somebody was killed in that, then there remains their story, their energy remains in that area. Uh, same thing with the lighthouse keeper that may have been there all of his life and then finally uh, passes while asleep or something. His energy remains. That's the theory. And what when you see him as a spirit or you hear the noise or the sounds or what, whatever, you're hearing, again, that energy coming back through the, the time portal. I postulated, so what happens underwater if we have a shipwreck and we have victims now that are on the wreck. In other words, the remains still there. Are they still there? Is the wreck a haunted wreck in every true sense of the word? In other words, can, it's, this is something that divers are able to experience being the visitor to the haunted wreck. And surprisingly, I was able to come up with about three or four different instances where indeed that's true, where the diver, in this case on the uh, 
diving the stern cabins of the Emperor up at Isle Royal. Emperor was a big steamship bulk carrier, uh, hit canoe rocks. Uh, the bow ends up in about 20 feet of water. Stern ends up in about 150, maybe 160 feet of water, almost standing on her tail. But divers that were in the engine room or in one of the, uh, the crew cabins and speaking with her, the diver, in this case, it was a female diver, and that has no sexual connotation to it. It was simply a diver. Goes in there, you're in about 135 feet of water, so you're deep. Looks in one of the uh, the bunk beds, and staring back at her is one of the crew. Man. Just, just looking at her. And she's looking at him, and then she said, Fred, I'm out of there. This is not the time to panic either when you're 130 feet down. <laughs> no, not not time. She was. I mean, she is an, a very cool cookie, but uh, had the experience and was willing to talk about it. And there's been others that were similar in nature to that. And uh, the only place I've ever seen that type of material was in some of the books I did. I don't doubt that it's other. I don't. I kill that. I do not doubt that there's other places where it's occurred or may be occurring. But this is the only one I know that is reported to be occurring, at least on the Great Lakes. Is it is it safe to say you are a bit of a believer in ghosts, ghost ships, unexplained disappearances, these types of phenomena around the Great Lakes? I think we all have a bit of um, knowing that there's things that we don't understand. Yeah. And I wouldn't call that being a believer nor a disbeliever. Simply somebody who's got his eyes open and says, I wonder what that was. When I had that written in my notes for, for today, I, I, there's so many... So many tales of the odd goings on around here that I, I have to believe that there, there are just some things we, we simply can't explain, you know, um, that we don't understand. But some people are more apt to see these things than others. But on my tours, I'll, I'll ask people to put a hand up if, you, if you're a believer and you've had experiences. Let's mm -hmm. say there's 20 people, maybe two or three will raise their hand. And by the end of the tour, I got 20 people telling me about the things that happened to them over the course of their lives. Oh, you can if you can get people to open up and uh, relate their experiences it's remarkable but it's it's also fascinating sometimes and, and the similarities in the, in the themes i find i was speaking with a woman yesterday and it was just amazing because we were like almost reading each other's minds we were sharing stories that were so similar that it was kind of uncanny that we had that had that moment yesterday one thing i, I always thought too is we, we had a diana stanfler who who's written a couple of books about lighthouses and one thing we talked a little bit about is if you've talked to people, I, I know a friend of mine, I'll see him in just a couple hours, who's, he passed. He was dead for about 20 minutes. He fell through the ice, had the whole out-of-body experience, transitioned toward the light. He and his friend both, they both eventually came back into their bodies, but they had such similar stories uh, of crossing over and being drawn to that white light. And Diana and I were talking, if you're on a shipwreck and, and you're going down and you see a lighthouse five miles away, you're, you're seeing also a light that's kind of drawing you towards it. And, and, and maybe that's why some of the other may, maybe bodies or, or souls are being drawn to that, to that lighthouse. That's just something we, we kind of came up with that for a hypothesis, I guess. Well, we have a, a lighthouse in Marquette, uh, Marquette Harbor Light, which is uh, operated by the Maritime Museum as part of their complex. And um, we've also, over the last three, four years, been having very active paranormal investigations of the light by a, a local group we've been working with. And some of the things they have come back with have just been startling, uh, particularly in conversations. In other words, will you ask a question and you get an answer from the other side? 
Uh, it's um, it's interesting because number one, that's occurring, and number two, that it's been going on now for several years, and that you have some audible uh, manifestation of what's what's occurring. I have a good friend here in town, John Cassidy, and he has a Bumps in the Night Paranormal Investigation Group around here. It's fun to go out with him. He has all the high-tech equipment. And we've had some strange things, even on the few investigations I've been on, things that just kind of make the hair on your arm stand up. <laughs> we, we, it's hard, hard, to, hard to debunk some of these things. I like to say things that go splash in the night. <laughs> of course. And are, are you familiar with, with, with uh, author Jerry um, uh, Dennis, uh, uh, author of The Living Great Lakes? Mm-hmm. I, I love that book. He documents, he mentions there's so many strange events that have happened and continue to happen within our borders and, of course, on the seasides lakes that surround us. Um, unexplained disappearances, drownings, maritime car- uh, catastrophes, and not just paranormal, but incident, like, like incidents caused by freak weather events, you know, the weather changes so quickly mm-hmm. in this area. But we also have weird things like uh, the underground rivers that flow between the lakes, bodies that have gone missing in Higgins Lake that will, will be found in Lake Michigan. There's a story, I think I think he mentions it in his book, and somewhere on the southwest side of the state, a bunch of people were bathing in the, in the, in the beautiful beach, the water there, and an underground river collapsed. And all of a sudden, they went from ankle deep to like 40 feet below water with sand pouring on them, something you wouldn't expect on a sunny day at the mm-hmm. beach. So we have natural occurrences also that kind of contribute. The Great Lakes are considered one of the more uh, dangerous places to live per capita in, in the world. Well, especially if you're in Chicago. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Michigan's treacherous waters have even drawn comparisons for unexplained phenomena being compared uh, to the, the Devil's Triangle, which... The Great Lakes surpass exponentially, especially when you consider the square mileage in, incorporated. It's estimated there are over 6,000 shipwrecks resting on the bottom of the Great Lakes. Sound accurate to you? That's a number that's as good as any. The difficulty is what's a shipwreck. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it's a vessel that goes on the rocks, they recover it, and it continues to sail for the rest of, an, of a long career, is that a shipwreck? Or did it simply go aground? What about a small fish tug with three three folks that uh, are lost in a storm? Is that a shipwreck? Uh, what about if it's a private boat, a uh, sport fisherman? Is that a shipwreck? So, you know, that number becomes very soft when you, you really kind of poke at it at the edges. But if you would consider 6,000, 6,500, I think you're, you're well in the ballpark for, for commercial vessels. And some of these occurrences remain unexplained even after hundreds of years of people searching out these ships that have gone missing. Have a couple uh, major aircrafts that have gone missing over the Great Lakes. Um, we're find, you know, the interesting thing is we're finding those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're knocking them out and, you know, with new technology. So I can well envision in the next 10 years there will not be anything missing. Let's, leave, let's, let's leave a little mystery to it. I'd, I'd love that. I hope, hopefully don't, we don't find everything. I like... Like uh, I, I was in Scotland uh, uh, maybe four years ago, and they keep showing that there's no DNA for Nessie. I still want to believe in that Loch Ness monster. Well, there's a difference between belief and knowledge, I think. Sure. But, uh, you know, we, we are finding them. I've been involved with a couple of expeditions that have found new shipwrecks. Uh, new. New from the standpoint of it disappeared, we found it. And it's... Uh, it, 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 it's worthwhile because it helps explain the past 
it gives you as a shipwreck diver something to really think about as you're out there looking. And it helps again to tell that story of maritime history uh, in the relationship of, yes, we lost it, it was gone. Now we discovered it using new technology. And now we're finding more and more about what actually happened to it. And is that a way perhaps of honoring the crews that were on board? So you can tie a lot of things together with these. It's a tech hunt. And if you want to throw enough money at it, you'll uh, you'll you'll do the trick. Understandable, sure. I remember when I first moved back to Traverse City, I grew up in Traverse City. We were watching the Blue Angels one evening, and they were just out for a train run, training run prior to the, the actual show. And they took off on a beautiful, clear night, 6.30 or so, a couple of the Blue Angels and also a Russian MiG. The Russian MiG disappeared within five minutes, never to be found. I always thought that was kind of a strange, and they really, really did a pretty extensive search for that. That one, that one was one that always kind of stuck in my mind, along with one, one that, that always interested me too was there was it's, it's been recorded there was a pilot flying over Lake Erie uh, maybe twenty years ago, and as he was airborne, he he could not find a, a point of reference. All he was seeing was Lake Erie and dense forest all the way around around the lake. So he's wiring back and forth to the aircraft control gentleman, and, and he's telling him, we're watching you circling within five miles of us. You, we can see you. Why is it you can't see us? And there's been like this thing, it was some type of a time portal that was going on, or again, one of those mysteries that I, I love the, I, the stories of Sasquatch, and we have a Bayview monster here in Petoskey, so these things always, have always interested me, but... But that particular uh, case, I, I believe the pilot crashed before he could actually find the runway. And again, he's looking from the air, from the air and seeing nothing but densely uh, forested area while they're watching him fly around. Well, I would uh, I would have a lot of questions on that one, starting with spatial disorientation. Was he an IFI pilot? Was he just VFR, low time to recreation? You know, when you read the accident reports, uh, that's usually a really big big issue. Mm-hmm. We did lose in the 50s, excuse me, in the early 60s, a uh, fighter in the eastern end of Lake Superior that was chasing a UFO. And uh, they've been looking for that now, off and on, people. Well, it's very funny. Um, you, you just said um, those three letters, UFO, because um, how about UFOs? Over the last few years, there seems to be an increasing sense of acknowledgement coming from the U.S. government about the phenomena of UFOs, which is which was spurred on even further by the recent downings of spy balloons, including just a couple of months ago here over the Great Lakes. This has led many UFO enthusiasts to feel they may have been right all along that the government knows of the existence of extraterrestrial visits uh, for years. Lake Michigan, specifically on the southern spot, seems to be a hot spot for UFO sightings. Any any thoughts on that? Are you a believer in the UFOs or uh, open-minded um. about well, I find it interesting that today NASA had a committee that was giving a report on their determinations concerning UFOs, that they're not calling UFOs anymore. They were UDAPs, Unidentified Aerial Platforms, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, explained a couple of them and had questions on the others. So we are increasingly giving it more emphasis. But again, much like spiritual and ghost stories and folklore, there's really yet no answer that anybody is, is willing to talk about. Agreed. But I will point out the night the Edmund Fitzgerald sank, there was a UFO sighting in the eastern end of Lake Superior. I, I had not heard that one before. Now, I'm not connecting the dots there, only that you had two events simultaneously. Oh, very interesting. Well, we're almost out of time. 
Uh, time goes fast, especially when we have such a knowledgeable guest that happens to have written over 30 books, including a cookbook, about one of the best places in the world to call home. I should have told you that. <laughs> Northern Michigan and the Great Lakes. We're so lucky to live here. Mr. Stonehouse, uh, can we invite you back to talk a little bit more about your, uh, your, your books? Well, certainly uh, always willing to talk. I've been your host, Christopher Struble. Please join us next time for more with author Frederick Stonehouse on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past.